This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. The following is a presentation of A's Cast, your free 24-7 nonstop destination for A's baseball. From baseball's top personalities. The great Chris Russo joins us once again. To the game's top players. Joining us is the all-star. Matt Chapman with us. You never know what stories you're going to hear. If you make your way down here, I, I might be able to make some time and go out there and see the great Chris Townsend. This is A's Unfiltered with Chris Townsend. Time now for another edition of A's Unfiltered with Chris Townsend. This one's going to be real special because we've come up with Fossey and Friends. So you're going to hear the conversation, Ray Fossey and Joe Rudy, Ray Fossey and Phil Gardner, and then we'll talk to A's outfielder Robbie Grossman and pitcher J.B. Wendelkin. But we're going to start it off with two old teammates, two guys that won World Series together. Here's Ray Fossey and Joe Rudy. Ray Fossey, where you were in Cleveland in 1972? Yes, I was, Tony. How you doing, buddy? I was born in 1972. I was born at the start of the A's dynasty. Tony, Carol and I played. We had a Cleveland had a game. I've said this before, but the Indians, we played in the afternoon, and Carol and I went back to our condo. And we had gotten married in 70, so 72, we had a condo in, uh, in uh, South Cleveland. Nobody lived in downtown Cleveland, so we were south of, of Cleveland. Now, it's a little bit different now, but uh, we, we were living in a condo, and I turned on the TV, and I just yelled, like, Carol, look, look, these guys are wearing mustaches and long hair, and, and nobody at the time did that. So that was my introduction to the, uh, the future world champion, Oakland Athletics, because the great late Charlie Finley had the promotion about guys grow mustaches, grow whatever, we'll give you money, give you money which, as uh, Raleigh Fingers would say, 200 bucks at the time with a, uh, a gold-plated mustache comb was a lot of money to the Oakland A's. So they took it, and uh, yeah, I was in Cleveland, and you know, as much as I didn't want to be traded, it turned out to be the greatest thing, because you know what, all these years later, as I've said, I get to sit here and talk to you guys, and uh, it's been it's been a blessing. And I, I thank my wife Carol because she kept saying, you know, there are two teams in the Bay Area, and and so we kind of settled here, and uh, the rest is history. Fortunately, I've been part of the Oakland A's organization for many many years, and uh, I'm very blessed and uh, very blessed to be on the air with you guys, and uh, happy to be here today, especially after a big one yesterday. You know, and, and I know we joke about it all the time, but I really mean it. When I call you the face of the franchise, uh, you know, you're, you're the one you're the one person that bridges the gap of the greatness of the A's in the 70s to where we are today. You're the guy. And well, I, I, I got to tell you, Ray, and, and stop being humble, because guys that I know that are my age and a little bit older who I hang out with, like their whole life they've known you you're the one constant of a's baseball in their entire life and i've brought a couple of a couple of them down on the field and i've had you go over and meet them and you know how they react when they meet you 
Yeah. Well, I, I will say it, it's it's kind of interesting, and and you know, don't really I don't think about it. I I just uh, enjoy what I do. I love baseball, always have. But I was someplace the other day, and of course with the mask, you never know what a person's doing behind the mask, you know. And I think Matt Pearl, after the A's clinched the Western Division, he had a he had a picture of himself, uh, and he said, "I'm smiling under this mask." Well, you don't know. And so I, I asked the gentleman about something. He goes, "Hey Ray, how you doing?" I went, "Huh." And I was kind of shocked. He said, I recognize the voice. So, again, it's something I don't think about. But, you know, uh, Tony, again, to, to have been in the Bay Area, and, again, I give my wife, Carol, a lot of credit because, uh, uh, you know, she's from the Valley, and uh, we settled in the area. And I've been here a long time, obviously. But uh, I appreciate the the compliments. But, you know, that 72 team and, um, you know, Joe Rudy is such a treat. And I think Cody's going to call him because you have – I think you have the general manager, David Forst, on a 10. Correct. So we're going to call Joe right now. Yeah, call Joe because, you know, he, he's such a great, great person. And, uh, you know, he and his wife Sharon down in Florida now, they were up in Baker, Oregon, and to uh, the Las Vegas area, and then uh, on to Florida where he's settled right now. So um, this is Joe. There he is. Joe, how you doing? It's Chris Towns with the Oakland A's and your old teammate, Ray Fossey. Oh, my God. Is he still alive? <laughs> <laughs> hey, listen, you, you're you already up, my friend, and you've had several cups of coffee because you're back on the East Coast. And uh, and uh, how's, how's Sharon doing? She's doing great. She's getting better every day or, uh, you know, uh, down with her physical therapy, she's just got to continue to work on getting her full range of motion back in her left arm. So she's doing good. No more pain, thank goodness. Well, that's good. I know you're in the you're in the great Florida area where the sun always shines and it's always nice. I was in uh, <laughs> uh, you know you know how that works. And I played instructionally one one often, and it was one of those things. You walk outside and you don't have to do anything. And compared to when we were in Arizona in spring training. Uh, the comparison of Florida, you walk out, throw one one ball, and you're loose. And in Arizona, you got to throw about 20 to get loose. So it's it's a little bit of different exactly. climate. But uh, you know, I'm happy for you, my friend. And it's a, it's an exciting time. And I know Chris and and Cody Elias. Cody, of course, contacted you, and uh, um, I'm very happy to have you on to talk about. Hey, listen, that great catch you made, and, and everybody's talking about 48 years ago. Where were they? And Cody, what'd you say, Cody? You're a minus 16. Yeah, I was born in 1988, <laughs> so I wasn't even a thought in my parents' mind yet. <laughs> oh my God. But Joe, but Joe, Joe, that that great catch in the World Series, and again, Vince Catronio yesterday. Uh, on the call, you know, he referenced you so quickly, making the, the call that the catch that you made in 1972. Take us back to that. And, and, and basically, I know you give a lot of credit to one coach who really helped you play an outstanding outfield. But take us back to 1972. I think it was game two in Cincinnati. Right. Yep. When, yep. when, when you Dennis made – when you made – yeah, Dennis Minkin, you made the fabulous catch. Take us back, and I know you remember it like it happened yesterday, but uh, take us back to that time because we saw it again almost uh, exactly with Mark Canna yesterday. Yeah, people don't realize the, you know, the, the thousands of times that you practice that very catch type of thing. Uh, like as you were referencing, Coach, you know, with the A's, myself especially, we're very blessed when we moved 
from Kansas City to Oakland that we had Joe DiMaggio, who was you know fairly yeah. decent outfielder, I think, if I remember <laughs> right. <laughs> anyway, you know, he was our outfield coach. And I, you know, I'm shortstop and bounced around third base a little bit. And they finally, Bob Kennedy was trying to make me into a left fielder. And, uh, you know, he took me under his wing that year in 68 and uh, starting in spring training. Joe DiMaggio was out there every day before games from spring training all the way through the seasons, all of 68, 69, trying to teach me footwork, you know, how to, you know, focus on, you know, the, the ball getting up to the hitter, I shift from the pitcher to the hitter and where to look in front of the hitter to see the bat come through and you know just learning your footwork was hard enough and then turning your back on a ball and going back and being on the right line and understanding that every ball you know right field left fielder if the ball's hit right at you or towards the line it's always going to be curving whether it's right hand Mm -hmm. or the left hand hitter it's always moving towards the line and uh, you always have to adjust for that as you turn because your first instinct like that ball was my to rotate to my left and then I had to make that adjustment back to towards the line as the ball started moving that way. But again, it was one of those wonderful things with, with the Joe D that, you know, we practiced and practiced and practiced. And I had a heck of a time learning line and go to the right spot. And, uh, you know, as uh, Yogi Berry used to say, it's a, you know, deja vu all over again because we <laughs> practiced that thousands and thousands of times uh, going back and on that ball and watching him yesterday again he's got to bust his butt to get back to the fence and actually that ball as an outfielder going to your left or your glove side i should say because it happened to if you're right-handed uh, or left-handed thrower in right field like reggie was uh, that ball to your left as you're running hard and trying to judge because the glove is over to your left. You really can't, you know, you're focusing on the ball and you open your gloves in the right spot. It, to me, it's actually a tougher catch. I mean, it was a, a super catch in a, in a very, you know, must win situation. That's amazing that, uh, that you worked on it that much. And Chris, jump in here anytime. I, I know I, I've got, several things to talk to Joe about, but, uh, Are you, but Chris, kidding how would you... Me? you guys, you guys just go, just go. Chris, Chris, Chris I have to ask you though, Chris Townsend, how, how would you like to have the great Joe DiMaggio teaching you to play the outfield? I, I, I got to tell you every single time I go into Vuce's office and I see the picture of <laughs> Joe DiMaggio and, you know, cause for me growing up, Joe D was a Yankee, you know, he's one of the biggest celebrities in America at the time and Marilyn Monroe and reading about him and seeing all that Joe, just to think that you got Joe DiMaggio as your coach. I mean, it's just, it, it's incredible to think of the greatness that you had around you that you were able to learn from. I, it really is. He was so in awe going to spring training, you know, and Joe D and like you said, the order around him and everything else, but he was a great guy. He was just, he was, he was just another player. I mean, once he got around the players, he was just one of the guys. He was a jokester and liked to screw around, and it, he was great. You know, he got very, uh, I guess you call him distant when he got around writers or people he didn't know. He was very cautious and guarded in that area. But with the players, he was just one of the guys. He'd go out there and yell at you and call you stupid and, you know, <laughs> you know where, where are you going and, you know, I mean, it was just so much fun to work with him all the time. And, uh, you know, people don't realize back then, I, you know, 
ballplayers didn't make a lot of money. We had, uh, I remember 67, we had uh, Gabby Hartnett, who was a Hall, Hall of Fame catcher, is one of our coaches. Luke Affling, wow. Hall of Fame catcher from, or shortstop from the White Sox, yes. was one of our coaches. Haywood Sullivan, uh, you know, there was a lot of great coaches back then that stayed in the game. And uh, yeah. as you said, try, you know, learning from Joe D, I mean, who, who else to teach all that stuff? Uh, uh, just a great guy. Joe, one of the things in, in watching the replay from your catch, uh, when you caught the ball, you put it in your right hand and you, you you raised it. Was there a concern that maybe you didn't think that they thought you caught the ball? Well, I mean, I don't even know if it's a reaction, but why did you take the ball out and, and put it in your right hand and put it up and then throw it back in and almost doubled off? I think it was Tony Perez at first base. But, uh, you know, what what was behind that? Well, I think as I went back to catch the ball, is one of the things Joe D taught me was, you know, when you're going up against the hard wall, you know, we didn't have padding back in those days. Yeah. And as you go yeah. up to catch a ball, especially backhanded like that, or, or either way, especially backhanded, uh, you know, as you catch the ball and you bang into the wall, it's really easy for the wall to knock the ball out of your glove. So as you catch the ball, you rotate your hand. And hmm. so you hit the hit the the wall with the front of your glove, not not the web back backing of it. And so as I caught the ball down coming down, I'm afraid that they're thinking that I caught the ball on a rebound off the wall. And yeah. so that's one of the reasons I held the second uh, to show them I had the ball and then threw it in. You know, to, made a good throw to Campy and a good throw to first, and just missed doubling him off first. But uh, that was my first thought. And of course. Uh, Sparky Anderson came out and argued because of the, the you know the bang the crash you could hear me banging into the wall. Uh, he came out and argued that I had trapped the ball off the wall. But thank goodness, you know, in the World Series you have six umpires and we had the umpire down the left field line, so he saw how I because he even put his hand up and showed him we rotated his left hand like I did after I caught the ball. And uh, you know that was my first thing. My first influence in my, went through my brain was I hope they don't think I trapped the ball. That's, that's a great point. How, how was it playing the outfield with no padding compared to today when you see, all, I mean, everything's padded. It's almost, uh, I don't know if a player would play in the outfield without the padding, but how, how difficult was it for you as an outfielder to know that you needed to make a play like that? And you, you obviously, you knew the warning track, you had, what, three steps into the wall, and you knew you were going to bang into it. How much of a concern was it for you as an outfielder knowing that there is no padding and you are going to hit the wall hard, and it could affect you. Well, I, I think it's no different than you as a catcher going back to the screen. Some of those things didn't have a lot of padding for you back there either. And, you know, you can't really think about it. I mean, you're totally focused on the ball, and you know you're going to hit the wall, and you just sort of prepare yourself to control the impact where it's not going to knock your glove out of out of a sort. I think the worst uh, bang or crash into the wall I ever had was in 73 against the Mets. And uh, I'm trying to remember who the hitter that hit that ball. You know, they had plexiglass in front of the, uh, you right. know, the, they had the walls, but in front of the bullpens straight away left behind me was all plexiglass. So there was no way you could catch, see it out of the corner of your eye. And I think it was Cleon Jones hit, hit a rocket back there. I went back and caught the ball and didn't know I was right there at the wall because I had run quite a while. I hit that wall and it, I don't know if you remember, it spun me around in a, in a circle and knocked yeah. me down because uh, I didn't know the wall was there. And so that was the other thing, you know, your peripheral vision sort of helps you out 
prepare that you're going to hit the wall. And uh, we just, it was, you know, accepted. Uh, we never thought about, well, it doesn't have padding or it does, uh, but I'm sure glad they do. <laughs> well, you know, just a quick point of reference. I know when you had came from Cuba and played here and he kind of shied away. And uh, finally, uh, Ariel Prieto was his interpreter and he told everybody they had concrete walls in Cuba. There was no such thing as padding. So there was a reason that he would shy away. But the, the, the one thing, Joe, today for the athletics and the White Sox, it's winner take all. And Cody Elias, of course, brought up the fact that 73 was the last time. It, correct, correct me if I'm wrong. Is that what you said, Cody, the last time there was a winner take all for the athletics in, in uh, game seven of the World Series in 73? That's correct. Game seven of the 70, uh, 73 World Series was the last winner-take-all win for the uh, Oakland A's. Okay, I want to go right. back with yeah. Joe because, Joe, you were there with the A's in 72. You had a winner-take-all against the Tigers game five. At the time, the league championship series, unlike now, is seven. It was five during that period of time. You had that against the Tigers, and unfortunately, your good friend Reggie Jackson injured his hamstring, couldn't play in the World Series. But then also game seven against the, the Reds is a, what is a winner take all as well. And you guys won. How much did that help? Because I came over in 73 and, and thankfully I did because I got a chance to get two rings with you guys. But how much did what happened in 72 with the league championship series and the World Series help you going forward in 73 to experience the same thing? Well, I think, you know, we played that way all year. You know, it was a big difference of today's how the game's played. You know, we had Dick Williams, who was an extreme stickler for small ball. You know, he did, yeah. you just didn't make mental errors with him. And, you know, when you got uh, thrown the wrong base, uh, man on second base with nobody out, you got to get that guy to third. Uh, you know, there was no excuse for not getting him over there or hitting the fly ball for the runner from third. But with less than two outs and that type of thing. So we played an awful lot of games, you know, three to two, two to one, that were really tight games. Unfortunately, we had a very good defensive team. And uh, and just, you know, getting used to playing that type of ball day in and day out, I think we were prepared to get into those type of games as we moved in. You know, 71, we were still a little bit young. We got swept by the uh, Baltimore in the playoffs. And... Uh, I think uh, he did a better job preparing us in 72, getting ready for that season. And uh, you know, it was a tough series with the Tigers. And, of course, first, uh, great team. We just happened to have better pitching and got a little more timely hitting here and there and got some breaks, uh, as every team needs to, to win. And so all you can do is go out and do your best. And, uh, you know, it's going to happen. <laughs> and so you uh, you got to be prepared for it. Joe, one of the things that Dick Williams did in game seven, he put Dave Duncan behind the plate because he figured the Reds were going to be running. And Gino has always told me the best day in his life was when I got traded to Oakland in 73 because he didn't have to catch because he wanted to play first base and didn't want to have the bumps and bruises behind the plate. But, but what did you see in game seven that basically you, you felt that you had a chance to win because of playing those close games? But some of the changes that were made by Dick Williams, I know he did it with me in 73, game six and seven. He put Darren Johnson in at first base um, and, and Gino caught to start out. I ended up finishing the games, but the, the changes that had to be made and were made by Dick Williams during those, uh, those couple of years, what did that say to you guys about how much he wanted to win? 
No, as I said, he was a stickler, and 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 you know all those both those seasons that we were well, actually I got to play for him three years. Seventy one, he was there. Right. Uh, you know when he came when he came over and joined the team in seventy one. You know he just changed the whole mental attitude of that ball club, and uh, everybody started playing basic fundamental baseball. And uh, you know coming into those series, like you said, you know he was a he studied things. He knew what was going on. You know put Mike Egan at first base. Remember the great play he made over there. And yeah. uh, of course Duncan had a Duncan had a great arm, and uh, it was. Uh, it's just one of those things, you know, times that Dave struggled at, at the bat as we all do going in and out of times when we're struggling at, at hitting. And, uh, so he, he, I thought he did a masterful job of moving people around, uh, you know, bringing catfish in to close the game, uh, you know, using <laughs> Raleigh at different times and, and just the way he strategized using everybody. I mean, the whole 25 man roster, he, he used everybody. You know, the one thing, Joe, that, uh, as I mentioned before, your good friend Reggie Jackson injured his hamstring in uh, Detroit Game 5 of the League Championship Series and could not play. I can still visualize him on crutches in the World Series uh, when you guys went to Cincinnati. The A's lost Matt Chapman, platinum glove winner, you know, two consecutive years. How did you guys go into the World Series knowing that you did not have your big bat in the lineup but knowing that you still had a good team to win, but missing that link, as the A's obviously are missing Matt Chapman, how did you guys handle the World Series knowing that Reggie was not going to be there? Well, it was a big shock. You know, fortunately, Reggie, through his play, you know, actually scored the winning run to help us, you know, yeah. clinch the winning the, the playoffs against the Tigers. That's how he got hurt, was scoring that winning run. And, uh, you know, it was a tough play. Bill Freehan was a – a big guy who was their catcher yeah. and he was blocking the plate and uh and reggie did a great job to get just to even score but uh you know going forward I, I think especially in 72 we were so happy as a team to be in the world series uh we didn't really have time to even think about we're going about against the big red machine and uh fortunately uh you know they probably had a much better overall hitting team than we did but we had the pitching and the defense. Yeah. We had a great defensive team, and we had great pitching, great relief pitching. And uh, I think when we won the first game, we go, hey, you know, we can win a game here. And then we win second game and go, whoa, uh, you know, maybe these guys, you know, maybe our pitching is that good, and which it did turn out to be. And we had tough games even out in Oakland. Uh, uh, those games were, were tough out there. They took two out of three from us. And then coming back, uh, we had to fly all night, got in there like – I think about dawn in 72 because we had the rain out. Yeah. And so we had, to, we didn't have a, we didn't have a day off. So we had to fly after the game Friday all night, get into Cincinnati, catch a couple hours sleep and go to the ballpark. And I think everybody was sort of groggy. I, I'm trying to remember, but it seems like almost every, all the games were like three to two, except that Saturday game. Uh, trying to think maybe there's one, uh, one to nothing game in there in Oakland. But we had a lot of really, you know, one-run games through that whole series. And, uh, as you know, people say good pitching usually stops uh, good hitting. Yeah. And that's what happened for us. And I know today is going to be a tough game in Oakland. And uh, it's, you know, it's a battle. You know, it used to say you go home after every game, you got a severe headache just from concentrating so much. Because <laughs> every pitch, whether you're on defense or, or offense, you can't afford to take a pitch off. You know, you've got to be locked in on every, especially on defense. You just can't afford to give up 
and, and you know, extra run here or there. And uh, pretty much that's what Dick Williams taught us to do, you know, all year long. So by the time we got into those playoffs, we were prepared mentally to play. Joe, before I let you go, I appreciate your time because um, I, I, I wanted to ask you because of the COVID-19 this year, the one thing that is missing, and, and obviously times have changed because of the analytics and a lot of things that go on. But in 1972, you guys were playing the Reds, and you had not seen them. How important, and, and explain the scouting report that you guys got. I saw, I saw what happened in 73 against the Dodgers when I was part of that. But, but how important was the scout? And I'd try, you know, you know his name. I can't remember his name. But talk about the importance of the scout telling you all the details of about the Cincinnati Reds that helped you guys beat them in the first of three consecutive World Series? Oh, it was phenomenal. I mean, like you said, we hadn't really faced them that much. And, uh, you know, I'm sure they still have the same thing today. We used to have what we call forward scouts that would be going to the team that you're going to play next and watching the pitchers, watching the hitters, you know, how's this guy handling whatever pitches uh, as a hitter and where to play him, where is he trying to hit the ball, uh, what pitchers are going to throw what pitches in that situation. And I know, when we uh, we got Cincinnati and uh, you know Dick Williams and the coaches obviously met and I'm sorry I cannot remember I almost want to say Clyde Klutz but I don't think that was him uh, the guy was, that it, was, Lloyd, was it Lloyd Christian? Oh yeah, I don't remember the name now, but he did a phenomenal job. I mean, he gave a book literally to Dick Williams. If you watch the replays of the World Series, Dick was constantly pulling stuff out of his pocket and he had like a book of information on every player, uh, where, where we should play the play, you know, defensively, where, where should we be playing on a defensive load? And, and then, uh, you know, went out, look at the number of times he went to the mound. And yeah, I think yeah. they finally came out with a rule about you can only go so many times without <laughs> taking the pitcher out. Was that because of Dick Williams in, in 72? But, um, it, it, I mean, it was critical. I really don't think we'd have won that World Series without that scouting report because it was so detailed uh, for everybody. I mean, he had stuff for us in the outfield, the infield, the pitchers, and what pitches the guys were hitting. I mean, it was to me, it was one of the best scouting reports I've ever seen. And you did it all from memory. You didn't have something in your back pocket that you referenced? Not really, you know. We we we, we uh, not anymore, you know. Back then, we had to really memorize guys, and uh, you know, That's one of the right. blessings that 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 we had was, especially after Billy North came over, was as you remember, you know, the guys like you know Tony Oliva, Rod Carew, George Brett. I mean, the guys are, that are really good hitters. You know, they're going to hit the ball, and we used to stack the defense it's a little bit like they do now in the infield. But you know, back then, we just you know say. Crew or Brett, you know they're going to hit the ball where it's pitch. So let's throw them hard yeah. fastballs away. I'd play really shallow. Billy and, and Reggie would swing way over towards left field, and Reggie's in right center, Billy's in le left center. Ball's over my head, Billy's got it. But I took away yeah. a lot of hits that were line drives right over Campy's head, over Sal's head, um, and uh, I didn't have to worry about behind me. But, you know, you had to depend on the pitcher not to throw an off-speed pitch, and the guy could pull it down the right field line. But I, if you remember those days, uh, that's pretty much the way Dick uh, taught us to play. Well, I'll close this in saying I know when I was fortunate to be traded over here, the first thing Dick Williams said to me, and you, you've talked about it throughout this, this time, he said, we pitch and we catch the ball. We don't give extra outs. And I'm sure that's what 
you know, he brought it over from the Dodgers as he grew up in the Dodger organization. That's the way he was taught and he brought it over. And I'm sure just as you talked about, that's what his influence on you guys was, especially from 71, 72, when you had the first experience with him, I got to experience it in 73, but uh, Joe cannot thank you enough for your time. I know uh, Chris Townsend has constantly talked about one thing, making contact as a hitter. And I know that you, I think you could right now put a bat in your hand, and I've always said this, and go out and hit and hit line drives because you were that great of a hitter and you still could be if you put a bat in your hand right now. So uh, continue enjoying the life in Florida. Our best to Sharon and uh, God bless you, my friend. You're a good man. And I always look forward to seeing you hopefully sooner than later. I hope so. Get this virus over with. Again, our love to Carolyn. You guys stay healthy out there. And uh, we're all very blessed, weren't we? Just be in the right place at the right time. And a a lot of things came together for us, didn't it? Well, it sure did. And there are only two teams in the history of baseball that have won three consecutive world championships. The New York Yankees, of course, and the Oakland Athletics. And I think, and Cody Elias is a great statistician, he knows, but I think the last time there were three 20-game winners on the same team was in 1973 with Catfish, Kenny Holtzman, and Vita Blue. So that's quite remarkable. You guys were tremendous. You've got three world championship rings. You deserved every one of them. And uh, to me, the most underrated player, but the greatest player that ever played left field for the athletics. So, again, appreciate your time, my friend. Well, I appreciate that. <laughs> we had, like you said, we had a great time. So good luck to the guys today and uh, just hope we get the, the right bounces and the right breaks, correct? You got that right, Joe. Thank you, my friend. Okay, you guys have a good one. Talk to you soon. Thanks, Joe. Thank you. You're welcome. He's a great guy, Chris. I'm telling you, that's gold right there. That's absolutely – I could do this every day. <laughs> well, listen, that Joe Rudy, uh, to me, seriously, he was so laid back. I, mean, I, won't say, I don't want to say laid back. He was a confident player. He, he, he looked like – and I don't want to degrade him because he was such a great player. And when I say laid back, it's like he didn't care. That's not true. But, but he, he played the game so well. And, and I think he said it best, when you have Joe DiMaggio as your outfield coach, <laughs> that says, and I mean, you, you remember the pictures of the coaching staff and the manager in the early yeah. 70s wearing white hats? They yeah. wore white hats. And I could still see Joe DiMaggio in his white cap, white baseball cap uh, coaching. And, and that picture you said of Steve Wusinich and the great Joe DiMaggio. But, but, but Joe Rudy... You know, he was clutch. Uh, the late Charlie Lau, if you notice his style of hitting, very similar to that of George Brett, hitting from the left side. Well, both of those guys were disciples of the great late Charlie Lau and the hitting, uh, the, the, the type of hitting that uh, Charlie Lau taught. And uh, listen, Joe Rudy, when, <laughs> I, I never forget whenever he hit the home run in 74 World Series against Mike Marshall, I, uh, I, I pulled it up and Kurt Gowdy was saying, uh, Joe Rudy, you know, and there's a drive in left field. He hits a home run, and Mike Marshall did not throw one pitch. He threw the first pitch during that delay because of the smoke bomb. He threw the first pitch fastball, and Joe Rudy, with that extreme close stance, I can still see it, hit a home run down the left field line, gone. And that was it. Matter of fact, I, it, it was just uh, Joe was just a tremendous player, but an even better, better person. Anyway, you've got the, you've got the general manager coming on, don't you guys? Yeah, and I will talk to you, Ray, in a little over an hour. 
Sounds good, buddy. And uh, Cody, continue great job, man. You you put the guests together. You're an amazing man, Commander Cody. Thanks, Ray. Thanks for helping out with Joe too. Okay, buddy. Talk to you guys soon. From Joe Rudy to Scrap Iron, Phil Gardner. We talked to Phil right as the Athletics were taking on the Houston Astros in the division series. Here's Ray Fossey and Phil Garner. Hello, Ray Fossey. Did you call me Raymond? No, I called you Ray. Before the before I called in, did I hear Raymond? I don't know. Did I? <laughs> I don't know. How are you, Tony? All right, I got a question for you. Well, first of all, let me tell you this: you've had a good show this morning. Matt Vaskersian was all. Matt Vaskersian was great. Dave O'Brien's the best. Um, Martin Gallegos. I mean, Cody is the master of arranging guests for you. But I must say, like I've said before. He arranges the guests, and you take over from there. So it's a, it's a nice uh, it's a nice team effort that you guys have. So congratulations, You're doing a great job. Well, Cody uh, went Reggie Jackson and said he's the straw that stirs the drink. <laughs> well, listen, he's got some big shoes to fill if he's going to say that, because because Reggie definitely was, and Reggie could back up everything that he said. Now I'm sure Cody can do the same thing. However. I'm sure there are some people who say, who are you, Cody? They don't say that to Reggie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, C- Cody Sorry, Cody. Have, Sorry, Cody. Cody. <laughs> Cody doesn't have a candy bar either. <laughs> well, did you hear what happened with those candy bars when they did that, the Reggie bar? They had to yeah. hold up play to get all the, all the candy bars off the field. Oh, yeah. They passed them out before the game, and they ended up on the field. And they said, wait a minute. And they had to postpone or at least uh, – take time to remove all the Reggie bars from the field, but it was a great, it's a great bar. It was a mixture between caramel and, and nuts and an around patty type. And it was good. I enjoyed it. Your question. I'm sorry to interrupt you. Go ahead. Phil Garner played in nine games for the A's in 73 played in 30 games in 74, but yet it doesn't list him as a world champion for those two years. Why is that? Because he was not on the roster. I remember asking him about that one time, and uh, they decided against putting him on the roster. So I, I don't know the particulars about it, but I, I know that uh, it was said and has been said that he won a couple world championships or a world championship. Uh, but, uh, you know, he took over when Dick Green, because he played a lot in 75, and he stayed here and then ended up going to the Pirates from, uh, from Oakland. And, he, and Chuck Tanner managed him here in Oakland, uh, remember the trade of uh, Manny Sanguin for Chuck Tanner, the catcher for the for the manager? <laughs> and then Chuck ended up back in Pittsburgh where Phil won the world championship in 79 or was part of that uh, We Are Family, Sister Sledge, you know. So, But, no, he, he was not on the roster. And I, I saw, you know, certain things happen. And um, But I remember he was on the team, but he told me he wasn't on the roster. And I can't remember exactly why he was not on the postseason roster. Uh, but you know, Charlie, I guess Charlie decided against it because we know Charlie ran the club or at least, uh, uh, people assumed he did. Uh, but you know, that's another story. Yeah. Well, you know, there, and, 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 you know, baseball in recent years, all you have to do is play on the team during the season and you get listed as a world series champion. Well, exactly, and you get the ring and the whole thing, and usually those uh, those players who do participate get the ring and the whole thing, but if 
you know, there's a 25 man roster for postseason, like at least then. Now it's uh, it's it's larger than that. But uh, you know, you're, you're listed that way. But bottom line, if you're not on the roster, technically, you're not one of the 25 that participated. And I think that's what Phil was referencing, especially in '74. He just came up for the minimal amount of time in '73. And in 74 played more, but uh, since he wasn't on the roster, I think that's where the designation changes where you have basically the 25 players, manager, coaching staff, and that's it as far as that particular team. And uh, yeah, you're, you're right. Cause I've looked it up and, and those players that I know uh, a lot of players, some of whom who were on the team that I didn't remember being on the team. They was just, come in and leave and, and and things like that would happen but uh in phil's particular case that i think and, and maybe we can ask him what happened uh when we have him on the air so you ask Mar- him. you ask him. <laughs> no i'm not asking him. all right the marlins <laughs> they have the moniker of the uh miami bottom feeders which is absolutely great uh yeah. so they went through some of the great and they did say the number one moniker of all time the 1979 We Are Family Sister yep. Sledge Pittsburgh Pirates, where they said led by the Hall of Famer Willie Stargell, who would hit the big home run in Game 7 of the World Series against the Orioles. They rate that as number one all time. And I'm not surprised. I'm not, I, I, was, I was getting ready, actually went to Venezuela that winter uh, in 1979, and um, I think moving some furniture in our house and then jumped on a plane and went down to Venezuela to play winter baseball right after they won the world championship in 79. But I'll never forget that. And, and you know, that's, you talk about a family, they were a family and you think of Willie Stargell, big pops and, and Dave Parker, uh, Garner, of course, on that. And, and, you know, just so many great players played on that team. And, uh, uh, I, I think it was Steve Blast, didn't he pitch a complete game in Game Seven? I think he, I think he said he had a complete game victory in Game Seven against the Orioles. Cody may can look that up because um, I, I remember interviewing him, and I think he said he had a complete game victory uh, against the Orioles in that. But no, it was it was great, and and you know they would play that song just like the A's play Celebration, and you know something like that is it's always going to be around. You're you're not going to change something like that. Calling Houston. We're calling Phil. That's speaking. Phil, how you doing? It's Chris Townsend and Ray Fossey. <laughs> how you doing? Good. You guys all right? Oh, hey, we're, we're, how you doing, buddy? Great. I'm all right. You're surviving all, this, surviving all this nonsense. <laughs> well, you know what? The, the one thing I look forward to when the club goes to Houston is seeing you in the manager's office and visiting with you. Now, I, my, my first question to you right off the top, you know, you're, you're a great Astros manager. You're great friends with Bob Melvin. Who are you pulling for in this series? <laughs> well, I'm hoping Bob uh, manages well. i got to pull for the Astros. i got to do I, that, but I'm looking for Bob. So maybe it'll end in a tie. I don't know how it's going to work. But... <laughs> I, I, I listen. That was a loaded question. You have to do that. But you know, uh, I, I, I do have to ask you. Tell us about your friendship with the skipper Bob Melvin. How far it goes back, and, and how it all started. And obviously, it's continued whenever the A's are in Houston, and I'm sure other places you see him. But how did that start? Well, yes, we go back playing days when uh, both 
played San Francisco, and 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 I got traded to San Francisco my last year. So that's when I got to know uh, Bob beyond just saying hello, you know, across the field on, on occasions. And actually, that's we played with Dusty Baker that my last year too. So Bob, Dusty, very well, and Bob and I became close close friends. So there's kind of a a connection between all three of us in that regard. but um, And then I got even closer to, to Bob when uh, brought him in to help out with some scouting in Milwaukee after I'd been with scouting. And actually, Sal Bando suggested that. I didn't know Bob was looking to do that at the time. And I said, when I heard it, it was, oh, yeah, that sounds like a great idea. And, then, of course, Bob was um, – he did a great job scouting, and then we wanted to bring him onto the field, in which Sal was very agreeable to that. So that's how that's how it all came about. Where uh, Bob Bob was my kind of like my right hand guy for five years, and and then he went on to manage and left me to go manage, and uh, and he's done very well since then. Obviously. Well, you mentioned Sal, of course, the captain, Sal's general manager with the Brewers at that time. You were with him in Oakland before the free agency and Charlie basically said, I'm not giving long-term contracts, but, but what was it like for you to be a part of the Oakland A's team and especially guys like Sal Bando and Gene Tennis, Joe Rudy, Reggie, and all those guys that you jumped in and were a great part of that, uh, those teams. Well, I don't, I don't know that I would say I was a great part of them. I came in after, you know, basically those guys were, were doing a lot of winning before I ever got there. So I was, privilege to come in and uh, Ray Fossey's being quiet over there because, you know, they picked on me a lot. But they didn't pick on me nearly as bad as they picked on Herbie Washington. But That's it was, right. You know, the razzing, the razzing that you, you took in those days as number one as a rookie or number two as an outsider, if you were perceived that, was, uh, was pretty tough. But it was all good natured. It was all in good fun. And you had to, you had to, if you didn't have a sense of humor, you need to figure out where to get one pretty quickly or otherwise they were going to have you crying. They, they were the best at uh, what they used to call riding you in those days. They were the best. So it, uh, it was enjoyable times. I, I never felt like I was not part of the group. I mean, I always felt like even though they had had successful world series before I got there, I, I always felt like I was a part of the group. So I, even though, um, uh, they beat up on me pretty hard at times. I still felt part of the group. Well, for people to understand, nowadays they have at least two, maybe three, four buses. Back then it was one bus. We were all on the same bus. <laughs> and, that, and, that's, yeah. and that's where the ride came up. But you know the one thing about Herb Washington, I, I think of his baseball card, and he's got a bat on his hand. And, we, and there was a reunion. I said, Herbie, <laughs> why did you have a bat in your hand? You'd, he never hit one time. I mean, he was he was a sprinter, a hurdler, and but no, you're right. He took the ribbing, and oh, by the way, he went on to he's had a very successful uh, post baseball career. But Phil, what one of the things that you, you you played for Chuck Tanner a couple of times? Correct me if I'm wrong. In '76, and then back in '79. Yes. Talk about '76 when you know that's with, right. Yeah, because he was traded uh, for Manny Sanguin, and and I think he opened. Right. But talk yeah. about talk talk about that team because I, I think I looked it up. He had 35 stolen bases, and you guys as a team in Oakland in 1976 stole well over 300 bases. What was that like with man with a manager of of a running team, and how much that helped you when you became a manager to do maybe some of the similar things? 
Well, it, it kind of changed the paradigm in, in those days. You know, everybody, Earl Weaver was a great manager at the time, and his famous line was, you know, uh, I'll take the three-run homer anytime. Yeah. Well, every manager will take the three-run homer. Sparky Anderson was managing Detroit in those days, and he had four or five guys that hit over the four guys maybe hit over 20 home runs one year. Um, we, everybody, any manager, if you had your choices, would take the three-run homer or a bunch of guys that could hit the three-run homer at any time. But then sometimes you got to play with what you're dealt with, and you don't have that luxury of power. And Tanner, Chuck Tanner, when he took over the A's then, he he sort of changed that that line of thinking and started running with reckless abandon. Just told, he told everybody. He told Sal. Uh, he told me. He told everybody. You feel a lot of bases. We're going to be aggressive starting in spring training. I want you out taking big leads. You're going to go steal bases. And if you get thrown out, it's on me. I want you to be bold and go do it. And, and you know, we uh, Matt Alexander made the team that year, and he was a um, a minor league player that had great speed, but you know, was it going to be considered a, a really a major league player? But Chuck brought him on, and he ended up, you know, stealing a lot of bases that year, and kind of fit into the the game plan. Which Chuck's game plan was: we're going to take it to everybody else. We may not have the power some teams have, but we're going to we're going to put pressure on you every chance we can. We're going to make your defense uncomfortable. And I, so you and part of the question you ask: how did that affect me? Well, I the when I got the managerial job in Milwaukee, we had zero power. And hmm. so we had to steal bases. And at one point in time, I stole uh, uh, with a five-run lead, which was uh, very much against the, the rules of, of the book in baseball, you know, against Sparky Anderson. It prompted one of their coaches to come out and say that our uh, in Detroit that our running game bordered on the ridiculous. To which we replied, look, Detroit is in scoring position when they get on first, uh, when they walk to the plate. We, in, in Milwaukee, we, we had to go second and third to get in scoring position. So <laughs> we, didn't, we didn't have a lot of power. So we had to play our game, and they had to play their game. And so it it affected me a great deal. I learned from Chuck to be bold. Go ahead and challenge the the uh, uh, the status quo, if you will. You know, Sparky, God bless him, was the dean of the managers at the time, and he was horribly offended that I stole – with a five-run lead, and yeah. I had to tell him the next day. I say, "Look, Sparky, God bless you. I I would never want to embarrass you, but I'm not going to go home after this over knowing that you can have two at bats and and tie me up, and I can't score as like you can. So yeah. I got to do what I got to do uh, to be comfortable. And so it it, it worked out, but uh, but Chuck influenced me that way in that particular year when he came in with the Oakland A's and we became the running team. Instead of the swinging A's, they were called prior to that. We were called the running A's after that. <laughs> well, you know, the, the thing is, you have a third base coach who gives a sign, and you also have base runners who have the green light to go and run whenever they feel they can get a jump. What did you guys do, especially in that 76 season, to steal that many bases? And like you said, everybody was running. Was it green light? Was it the stolen base? How, how was the sign given? Well, Chuck, Chuck was – very astute and number one in what you find out if you if you're going to steal bases you have to be bold you can't be afraid of getting thrown out if you're too tentative yeah. 
you're never going to get the jump that you need to jump to steal, particularly at the major league level. So, so Chuck took that little part of the equation away when he said, look, it's on me. I want you to get a jump. Just be aggressive. Get a jump. If you get thrown out, if you get picked off, it's on me. It's okay. And he did. He took, he took that load all year long. If we got thrown out, if we got, and you know, the old adage was don't steal third base. Uh, yeah. because you're in scoring position at second base, but we stole third base a lot. And Chuck, if you got thrown out, Chuck said, it's on me. Now we'll, if you need, if you get thrown out every time, maybe we need to consider that. But, uh, the first part of the equation is being, feeling like you're, you're going to steal the base. You cannot have any second thoughts in your mind. So Chuck took that away. The other part about it is, is you've got to be able to pick your spots and, and when you're comfortable. So Chuck let that happen giving us, I think, just about everybody a green light. And then he'd put a, a, a stop sign on if he didn't want you to run. So, you know, that was out there too. But by giving you a green light, it wasn't like you had to go on that particular pitch. You could get yourself comfortable when you got comfortable takeoff. So it allowed the player to kind of get into the game. So as a player, you kind of generally know when a pitcher's going to throw an off-speed pitch or a breaking ball. You kind of – if you don't know, you get the feeling, and most guys that are going to steal bases would rather steal when a guy's going to throw a breaking ball or something off speed. So um, it allowed players to think for themselves, and I think most players are better when they do that. So yeah. that too. So it all it all played out very well, and um, we ended up getting the playoff season. Yeah. The great Phil Garner is uh, joining us, that great uh, voice, Scrap Iron, the nickname down in Houston. And Phil, one of the things about you, I think is special that you had a chance to play on a world championship team this, this month of October, there's no doubt month of October is the most special month in all of baseball. And you had a chance to play for a team that won a world championship and you managed the team in a world series, the Houston Astros in 2005. Tell us what it's like to be a player and the pressures you go through as a player and the pressures you go through as a manager, because like I said, you had an opportunity to do both. Well, and, and there's different, there, there's a different uh, approaches to the game as a player. You're basically, you know, consumed about yourself, your own position. So if you're second base, you're, you're constantly going through the lineup thinking, okay, am I in the right position here? We're going to pitch this guy's way. If it's a left-handed pitcher with a sinker ball, I may play a different way than I do against, with a left-hand pitcher that's a, he's a rising fastball. Or, or, and the same thing can be true with right-handers. So you're really concerned about your area of the game, how you're going to do offensively or defensively. So you're focused on that. And there's a great deal of pressure you can put on yourself. But I would bet that, that what I felt the majority of players feel, uh, and that is once the game starts, a lot of that anxiety goes away. Most of it goes away. Players have been performing their whole life, a lot of them in, in tough situations. And so when you get into those, most players really enjoy playing in those situations. And so what I found was, is, boy, if you, you, know, you walk out on the field and you realize 80 million people are watching, and if you mess up, it's really <laughs> going to be a mistake that everybody's going to remember. And, uh, but on the flip side is, you can if you learn to channel all of that energy which is created by the anxiety then you realize you're actually a little bit stronger you throw the ball a little harder you swing the bat a little faster and you run a little quicker than yeah. than you could on a normal day 
And it, it's just a fact that when you start these, every one of these little series, whether it's a, you know, the championship series or whether it's the um, wild card series or even the world series, every one of them from, from the first playoff series on up as it ratchets up just a little bit. And so as a player, you're so keyed up that you don't get fatigued. And I'm not laugh at some of these people talking about guys being tired. That's such baloney. You're running on, Thank you're you. running on, Oh yeah. And, and if a guy's <laughs> tired, if he tells me he's tired when you get to the world series, I'm going to tell you, look, son, you're in the wrong line of work. You need That's to go right. play. If you can't get up, if you can't get up for the world series, there's something wrong with you. So yeah, you, you, you know, when you go home, when the series is over, you crash for three or four days. Cause right. you, you are, you are tired, but if your adrenaline's running the way it should be, you're not physically tired. You're, you're, and emotionally, you're into these games. And I would say that as a player, it is great, great fun once you learn how to channel the anxieties and use it for your benefit. And I'd learned to do that, and I thought it was great fun in those situations. Now, as a manager, those anxieties are a little bit different. Yeah. <laughs> you know, Phil, so, you you know, so along those. Along that line, Phil, I want to ask you because unfortunately uh, this age cast is going to end. But I want to ask you about the '79, the We Are Family, that group of guys that you had. That man, it, it, it was just a tremendous team. What was that like playing on that team, and and hearing Sister Sledge and We Are Family being a family, winning the way you guys did? Well, and I'll tip my hat to Chuck Tanner for that too. It was a wild yeah. and. and- a crazy bunch, very much like the Oakland A's in their heyday. And Chuck Tanner knew how to handle them. He never came down with a hard hand, heavy hand. He used uh, kid gloves. He let uh, generally let these players become men, treated them as men, and said, "Go play and let let them play." For the most part, uh, very few very few times did Chuck ever get angry. And when he did get angry and and show that. Every player knew that we deserved the, the chewing out got or the discipline that Chuck needed to put out there. So, but but we had great players who had great leadership. So Chuck didn't have to do that much. He kind of just sort of guided along with a soft touch. But when you had yeah. Willie Stargell and Dave Parker, Willie Stargell was everybody's <laughs> favorite captain, and Dave Parker was everybody's MVP. You know, for a few years there, that was one sure. of the best ball players in baseball. So everybody. Up behind those guys, we had a good pitching staff anchored by John Candelaria, and on the front end, and Kent Tacovia on the back end. We had a solid yep. defense that could could catch the ball. Oh, and, and Tim Foley at shortstop, who was fearless. You know, he, you know, he he just dared you to cut him up at second base. He didn't nothing, none of that bothered him. So we had we had all the ingredients, and Chuck Tanner kind of mixed them up and threw them out there and let us play. So, and, and the results turned out to be pretty doggone good. Well, and they had a scrap iron guy at second base. Now, I'm going to quickly ask you in about 60 seconds, explain what it was like managing the Houston Astros when Albert Pujols hit the three-run home run in the well, league I, championship. <laughs> you can ask me a lot of questions. It won't take 60 seconds to answer that. It, it took the air out of our balloon, that's for sure. But i got to tell you the, the, the better part of the story. So the next yeah. day, we got to go to St. Louis to conclude the series. We couldn't finish it at home. We had to go there. Right. We get on the airplane the next day, and most of the time, when you get these 27- to 28-year-old kids on the airplane at 11 o'clock in the morning, there's a lot of racket going on. People are playing backgammon. 
cards, playing funny games, poking each other. There's a lot of racket. Well, we get on that plane that morning. It was dead silent. We're flying to St. Louis. I mean, I'm up there on my front thinking, okay, boys, I got to give a Newt Rockney speech here. What am I going to do? And and all of a sudden, there's a voice comes over the microphone and said, ladies and gentlemen, this is your captain speaking. And we're going to be flying at 30,000 feet to St. Louis today. And oh, by the way, if you'll take a look at the left side of the plane, that object you see over there is on the pull hose hit last night. (laughs) And the whole plane went nuts. And it turned out to be Brad Ausmus that got on the microphone and and did that. And when that happened, I kind of knew that it it was – St. Louis is going to be in for a tough night, and and we ended up winning. And so yeah. I'm going to tip my hat to Brad Ausmus. I think one broke the ice, and and was the real reason for that inspiration. Well, Phil, I can only say thank you for spending time with us because, like I said, you were a great second baseman, scrap iron, and uh, you know we we enjoyed teasing a little bit, but you handled it quite well. And to go on and have the career you had as a player. <laughs> And as a manager, uh, and I, like I said, I miss seeing you down in Houston, but uh, you take care of yourself. And, and I, I knew the first question, you're going to root for the Astros because you're there. And the uh, not surprised to hear that. The best to you, Carol, and uh, we'll hopefully see you soon. Okay, good deal, guys. Stay safe. Thank you, Phil. Appreciate it. How good's that? Donnie, are you still there? Yeah, I'm still yeah, there. <laughs> Hey, but you know what? I I like before we started that when you said, and hopefully Phil hung up, but uh, you said when we had Hawk and Joe and now Phil, uh, the club is two and oh in those two previous and you guys said three and oh. So let's, let's hope you're correct. But uh, you know, the, the amazing thing, Phil, Phil was an outstanding player. He's a very good manager. And he took over that Astros team at what, 2004 and then all of 2005 and guided them to the World Series. But, man, I had to get that question in about the Albert Pujols home run because I remember watching that, and they were all on their feet. The fans were. They were going to end it, and Pujols hit that. And that entire Minute Maid Park or whatever it was called at the time, Enron or whatever, it went deadly, deadly silent when he hit that ball. I mean, if anybody's been at Minute Maid Park, they have the train up on the top. And it just, I don't remember if the roof was open or closed, but uh, like Osmond said, and it takes, it takes a player to be able to do that because I think Raleigh gave up a home run one time to uh, Larry Heisel that I said it's, keep or- it's still orbiting the earth. It was hit so far, and that's what Pujols did as well. But uh, good stuff with uh, Phil. He's a, he was a good man and continues to be, and uh, I know we see him down in Houston every time. The A's going to Houston, and uh, Steve Usenich would say, hey, Gar is here, and I knew where he's going to be, right in with the skipper and talking to him. But uh, they go back a long way, and Sal Bando, of course, uh, general manager with the Milwaukee Brewers, brought Bob in. And, you know, he's he, to me, he's the best manager of baseball right now, Bob Melvin is. And uh, I think the A's fans should appreciate the fact that they have the best in the game. And, uh, you know, we're fortunate. And, and you know, he, he's such a good, good manager on the field but also a great person uh, when it comes to handling the players in the dugout and in the clubhouse. And that's what it takes to be a good manager. Are you, I, I can can I, can I lift your spirits, Ray? Yes, sir. And they're already lifted. I'm ready, man. Give me some, give me some, whatever you got. Sean Mania, When he starts a day game, the team is 15 and three over the last three seasons. And yep. the opponent is averaging only 3.2 runs a game. 
When Manaya starts, the total is well, you don't want you don't care about that. Uh Oakland is 93 and 57 after a loss over the last three seasons. Well, you know, the one thing, and I love those numbers, but the one thing I liked yesterday when Mike Miner came in, Springer was four for four. What did Springer do when Miner faced him? Struck out. So if Manaya has his good stuff, and, and you know, I, I think, you know, people could say, well, he's going to be nervous. I think what he did not do in the wild card playing game last year, I think he had to he had to deal with that. What did Dave O'Brien say? He went to Asia. He was so upset that that he left the country after that game. But you know, the the, the bottom line: these guys don't look as pressure. They look at okay, I'm going to show that I deserve to be out here, and I think that's what we're going to see from Sean and I today. And we'll see what happens. But a a bottom line: there's uh, it's a five game series, and until you lose three or win three, something's going to happen. And I think the A's realize that as opposed to a one-game wild-card game. And uh, I I think the biggest thing, too, Justin Verlander will not pitch game five if it goes five. (laughs) That is fact. All right, Ray, I'll talk to you in A's Total Access. All right, my friend. Good to talk to you. Thank you, buddy. Oh, those are just classics. Fossey and friends absolutely love it. We also, during the playoffs, got a chance to hook up with outfielder Robbie Grossman. Here's Robbie. Well, now joining us here on A's Cast Live, we always love having him on the program, A's outfielder Robbie Grossman. Robbie, how you doing here on a Tuesday? I'm doing great. I'm doing great. Looking forward to um, getting out there today and uh, and even in the series. Yeah, I mean, this, this game two is huge. You know, you, you lose game one in a best-of-five series, it kind of puts you in a hole. But if you come back and win today and even up the series, now it's just a best out of three. Correct, correct. Um, like I said, looking forward to it. The guys are fired up and uh, looking forward to go out there and competing today. When you hit that double yesterday, did you think that ball was gone? Uh, no, like in a, in a normal ballpark, not a chance. But here in Dodger Stadium, um, it, it, you always have a chance. You could put the ball in the air at, at, at any point. You know, that's the thing about Dodger Stadium. Years ago, and maybe just because they always had good pitching and they had a bunch of Cy Young Awards, they uh, uh, Cy Young Award winners, they always talked about how Dodger Stadium, it, it's a pitcher's ballpark. But, you know, what we have seen in the series before where you played the Dodgers and, of course, in the game yesterday, it, it, it doesn't seem like a pitcher's ballpark anymore. It seems more like a hitter's park. What are you feeling and seeing there in Chavez Ravine? Uh, I've always heard that it, it's a it's a tough place to hit, man. Uh, over the years, I've come here uh, a couple times, and and I've never seen that uh, be the case. Um, it's um it's, it's a great place to hit, great playing surface. Um, obviously, a historical ballpark, but um, always looking forward to playing here. What's it like for you? There just seems to be certain ballparks that when a hitter walks into it, you feel comfortable, you see the ball well, you have a lot of confidence, versus like you go to another ballpark, you feel like, eh, I don't feel so hot here. Like, how does that work out? I think more so just batting practice. Um, you take batting practice in places, and, and especially coming from the Coliseum where you have to hit it twice in most nights to get it out. But um, – come here and you hit a ball off the end and it goes out and you're like oh wow um that's different um i can't wait to get into the game it's just the margin of error um it's just you hit the ball hard it's got a chance yeah it looked like yesterday and 
you know, you tell me being in the outfield, it looked like if you hit the ball in the air yesterday, it, it didn't matter if you're an A or you're an Astro, it had a chance to go out. 100%. And that's been the case every time I've been here. And uh, um, you look back in our series when we played the Dodgers three weeks ago, whatnot, um, it, was the same, it was the same thing. And uh, it's, uh, it's, it's a definitely a, a reason – why all these guys try to hit the ball in the air over here? Because they, uh, you, you have a chance every time you hit the ball hard to uh, for extra bases. What is the mentality going in a, into a game two, just like you guys did against the White Sox that you're doing today after you lose game one? Hey, hey today's a new day. Um, we get a chance to even the series. Um, we, we it was a very good game yesterday. Um, yes, it didn't go our way, but hey, look. Today's a new day. Um, we still ultimately have four more games to play, and uh, and 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 we'll come out with a win today. You know what I love about it? You guys are such on a day-to-day deal to where you know I deal with the fans, and the fans fans either think it's the greatest thing in the world you've won a game, or it's like Panic City if you lose a game. How is it for players? You guys don't ride that roller coaster. That can't be easy not to ride that. Well, look. Um, when you do this for a living, you can't ride that roller coaster, or you'll just be a mess. Uh, <laughs> bottom line, like you have to come in every day as a new day, or uh, you're gonna ride that roller coaster, and it's gonna be an uh, absolute disaster for you. Um, so um, I think it's just the uh, it comes with playing the game, it comes with experience in the game. Is hey, and and it's gonna it's gonna benefit you going forward. Just coming every day as a new day. You know, it's so key for a starting pitcher to pump the strike zone and keep the rhythm of the game going. And because once a guy starts slowing up and you start walking batters, I mean, it's just disaster city. I, for, for you as a defensive player, how important is it that that starting pitcher gets into a rhythm and really keeps you guys on your toes? Uh, just <laughs> just the pace of the game, um, putting press, pressure on their offense. Um, and we got guys that do that every time they go out, um, and, uh, just keeps the defense in it and, uh, keeps, keeps the guys, keeps the guys alive and keeps the guys in the game and more so just puts pressure on the other, on the other team. When you can face a guy that is coming right after you and you know, you're going to get a strike. It, it makes it tough to hit. It's, it's the hardest thing in the world to do is hit a baseball around ball around bat. But you got a guy really challenging you and, you know it's coming after you. you. Know it's going to be in the strike zone. It, it makes it really tough. You know when Chris Davis goes yard, man, the, the the dugout absolutely lights up. And he went yard in Game Two against the White Sox. He went yard yesterday. We know the struggles that he has had. We all love Chris. Just how important is he to your lineup? And when he starts hitting, it starts energizing everybody. Hundred percent. Um, look what he's done for this team over the last. For years, I've been on the other side of it. Um, he's carried this team, and we all know how good of a player he is, and I know how how much is this he is part of this team, and we need him. And when he, like you saw, you saw the reaction from the dugout yesterday when he went gone. It's a, it's it's a shot in the arm. And then, of course, the Astros. I mean, you know these guys real well. I mean, the bottom line is they didn't have a great year, but now they're 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 three and zero in the playoffs. Do you, do you see the confidence that they have as a team that's been battle tested and, and they've kind of gotten their groove back? Uh, 
I wouldn't say they got their groove back. Um, we know who they are. We know who, who we got to beat to to beat them. We know uh, everything that they're going to throw at us. We've seen all their pitchers. Um, we know what kind of game they want to play. Um, but it's just us controlling the game and uh, and uh, playing our game, and we'll beat them like we did in the regular season. You know, we talked to Bob Melvin uh, two days ago, and he talked about finally you guys are in a full bubble and said it's actually really nice that Major League Baseball has done a really good job. There's a lot of comfort, and there's places for you guys to, you know, watch sports, whether it's football or baseball, and and work out and train and, and get, get treatment. What, what What's life like inside this new bubble? Uh, it's different. Um, it is a real bubble. Um it's um, it, it, everything's been taken care of, and that's all we can ask for from uh, Major League Baseball. And 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 now it's just for us to control the controllables of, of playing the game. Well, I got to tell you, man, we're we're all pulling for you and, and hoping for a victory today. And then it's a uh, winner of two out of three. We'll move on down to uh, San Diego. Did you get a chance, by the way, to check out any of uh, the Yankees and the Rays last night? Oh yeah, I watched the game. Um, yeah. What a what a game! Uh, to be a great matchup, just like we have over here on our hands, and uh, hopefully see them in the San Diego. Yeah, I, I got to tell you, they all feel like big league fights. I mean, it just seems like <laughs> you got you got four heavyweights going after it, and uh, anybody can knock anybody out. Mm-hmm. And that's playoff baseball, and that's what everyone strives to. From the first day of spring training, this is where you want to be, and. And we're here, and uh, it's, it's up to us to, to make the best of it. Hey, I always appreciate the time. Good luck today, and hopefully we'll talk to you later on here in the postseason. 100%. Thanks for having me. Let's hope that Robbie stays with the ball club for a few more years because, boy, he did have a good season last year. And then a guy who's emerging in the bullpen is J.B. Wendelkin, getting some key outs for Bob Melvin. Here's J.B. As J.B. is going to join us here, Chris Townsend on A's Cast Live. J.B., how are you? Good. How are you? I, I, I'm doing well. A fine performance yesterday. How did you feel in game one of this series? Uh, I felt really well. I mean, it's one of those things. Uh, just roll out of bed and try to treat, treat it like a normal game. Don't think about anything else. Just go with the flow. Yeah, when you talk about a normal game, um, obviously not a normal game. I Just talk about the process that you guys, and I'm sure the same thing had to happen today, how early you guys had to get to the ballpark so you could test. Oh, yeah, it's, it's, it's early. It's early starting the morning. I mean, I think it's the earliest we've had to show up to the field, but I don't think that has affected any of us at any at all because most of us have families anyway, and we know them babies keep us up. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's that's the truth. It's like, yeah, with all the feedings and trying to help your wife, it's like uh, you don't get a lot of sleep when you have young kids. That's right. That's right. So what was this year like for you guys? Uh, obviously, this was not an easy year. It was 60 games, but you prevailed, and congratulations, winning the American League West. I know that was a big deal to all the players. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I appreciate that. Um I know the boys do too. Uh, it, you could sit here and say the uh, the game, the well, not the game. The season was weird, but uh, I mean, for the most part, it's it's the game we play. It's not, the only thing that really changed was the fans not being there and the testing and all that. And other than that, the game was still the same. And I mean, it being shortened and all that adds a couple woes in there. But at the same time, I felt like we all we all knew we had a job to do. And we came in and did it, and uh, it prevailed for us. And uh, now we're like I said, we're facing these next two games. We're going to win them, so we're going to go at them. 
Yeah, I like the confidence because I think you got the right guy on the mound. Uh, you Absolutely. know, you look at the American League Pitcher of the Month, Chris Bassett. I mean, these numbers are crazy. 3-0 and with a 0.34 ERA. You've known Chris for a while. What have you seen in his growth to becoming the best pitcher on, on the pitching staff? Uh, just his absolute, absolute tenacity to just go out there and want to win and want to be here every single day. He comes with an absurd amount of energy. and <laughs> I mean, you can't you can't knock the guy down for that because, I mean, he's got the whole team on his back when he's, he's – I mean, he is raising Kane the entire game, and it's it's fun to watch because he seemed like I said when I, like I said I, I've known him when we were in the White Sox days, and when we were both kind of young then didn't really know anything. We were all kind of quiet, and as soon as you get into you get into your groove and you're the way you are, and then he's comfortable and he's feeling himself, and I mean his results are showing out there on the field, and you know it what? is absolutely fun to watch. You know, one thing that I talk about in the post game show a lot is there there's two types of starting pitchers. There's a guy, there's guys that go out there to win and guys that go out there to survive. When I say that to you, do you see that from the bullpen or where you're in the dugout that there's just two types of starters? I mean, you can, I've seen it in a lot of, a lot of guys' faces in the past. And I, it's crazy to think that some people are just like, all right, I got a cruise. When, when nine times out of 10, they're going right at him. And that's what you really, that's what you're really looking for in pitchers and our and our staff and our bullpen. I mean, we're all out there to win. We ain't nobody trying to get out there and just coast. Well, I think about your bullpen, the number one bullpen in Major League Baseball. And I know you guys have a lot of fun out there, but you guys also take a lot of pride and putting up a lot of zeros. What was it like being around these guys this year? Oh, it's absolutely awesome. I mean, like I said, everyone of us coming out to win, and I mean. When it, when, it's, when you're when when you treat it like that, I feel like it's kind of hard to have a bad day because you're coming in there with the, the attitude that you need and the energy you need to bring to get on that bump and know that you're going to do your job. And it's when you're blowing doors like that, like Liam and all the guys like that. I mean, it's it's crazy when you have that much success from just energy. I it is still so hard to believe that Jake Diekman did not give up a run to the Dodgers series. I mean, when you think about that, just how crazy is that? Uh. I'm, I hate to do this, Dick, but I, th- I think he did give up a run. Uh, but, I mean, the thing was, uh, he, his whole year was absolutely immaculate. He should have went a perfect 110% all the way through because that dude is filthy. You can come from 98 from the left side with a banger slider and just embarrass people. And that's, I mean, as a righty, I'm feeding off of that, knowing if, if, I'm go- if that guy's following me, I know. I know i got to put him in the right position to win. So if that, that's how you keep that thing going between all of us. And you become so much more valuable as a left-hander now when you prove you can get right-handed pitchers out, I mean, right-handed hitters out, because of the three-batter minimum rule. That's right. And and he absolutely blew it out the water this year. He is absolutely, like I said, filthy. And the three-batter minimum rule, I don't even think it really bothers anybody in our pen. There's, There's not one person that's like, oh, I can only face lefties or I can only face righties. Every one of us knows that when we go out there, we got that job to fill. And when we step into that, onto that bump and we do our job, and it's, it feels real good. You know, I haven't asked a, a reliever this yet this season. You'll be the first one. I, I got to think that that's not even on your mind, that when you go out there, you're already expecting to face three. Oh, I, I'm expected to go multiples. When I'm out there, I know I, I, I'm trying to think that I'm going for two two-plus innings every time I'm out there. So that's that's the mentality. I'm, I feel like I know that I'm taking, and I know that the guys behind me are taking. That 
we're not there's no one and done. It's it's keep pushing, keep pushing, keep pounding. When you guys went over your scouting report of the White Sox, was it was it strange that you're you're, you're doing a series with a team you you didn't even see this year? Uh, no, it's not strange at all. When you when you go into those things, it, it's kind of actually beneficial because they haven't seen you all year. So I mean, technically, you got a little little something in your back pocket. So going into that, not not paying attention to anything, I'm we're looking for swings and misses and their weak spots, and that's that's what the main goal is when you go into your scouting reports and all that and. And pitching to your strengths and knowing all that, I mean, I feel like it's a benefit, to be honest with you. Uh, did you guys discuss how well they hit velocity? Uh, not really. Not really at all. It's, I mean, obviously it's a known fact, but it, it's whatever. Um, but it, we're going to still pitch to our strengths. Um, and if it plays into their strengths, then you got to critique it a little bit. But then it's mostly loca- location, not necessarily just the heater. Well, I got to tell you, today and tomorrow are going to be real exciting. Good luck to you guys. Uh, are you one of these guys when Bob Melvin says could take the ball every day? Like, even though you went two and two-thirds, could you say, Skip, I'll take the ball today, I'll take the ball tomorrow? Absolutely. Every one of us in that family do the same. Same thing. Absolutely love it. JB, thanks for the time. We always appreciate it. Good luck today, and we'll talk to you later on in the playoffs. I uh, appreciate it. Well, this one was a lot of fun. Ray Fossey with Joe Rudy, Ray Fossey with Phil Gardner, Robbie Grossman, and J.B. Wendelkin. Now back to A's cast powered by iHeartRadio. This has been a presentation of the Oakland Athletics. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with h track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones, so we'll never lose touch with civilization, and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic? And conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.